Good morning. Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Surprisingly enough, it's on page 1 <laughs> in your pew Bibles. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is also the version in the pews. It's verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And if you'll turn in the New Testament to John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59, and that's on page 895 in the Pew Bible. The Jews answered him, that being Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But, if you, but you have not known him, I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And let us pray, please. Heavenly Father, it's with a heavy heart we come before you this morning, mourning the passing of our sister in Christ, Barbara Freeman. We thank you that you have called her home into glory, and even now she sits in your presence. But we do pray for the family. We pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them and comfort them in this time of loss. And we pray, Lord, that they would feel free to call upon us to assist them in any way possible through this difficult time. Heavenly Father, we worship you in your triune nature. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, O God, created the heavens and the earth. Your spirit moved and hovered over the face of the waters. Your word teaches us that the word, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, the Alpha and Omega, is truly I am. In him all things were made, so that without him was not anything made that was made. We praise you that through Jesus Christ we have salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. Now, Heavenly Father, please strengthen us to be better equipped to serve you through prayer, study, and service. To that end, please be with Jerry as he brings us your word through its reading and exposition. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Before we get into the text of John 1.1, let's take a moment or two for some interesting uh, family stuff. The first thing is, the Lord Jesus said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Who who believes in me will never die. And if and if you die, you will live forever. And so we think about Barbara Freeman, and we believe she's going to live forever. So that sadness is mixed with expectation and hope. Second thing, uh, the thing about the prayer uh, with the elders, I've had several people come up to me and say, could I, I pray with you? Like on a Sunday morning when they're in the church, and I'm always glad to do that. But we had a, a lot of shepherds, and just aware that there are a lot of things going on in your lives, births of new babies, uh, surgeries, deaths, job changes. We even had someone to try to top everybody with having their house burned down. You know, all sorts of things going on. But you did, Nick, you did move into a new accommodation this week, didn't you? You got into a condo out of that extended living. And now I can actually shut his bedroom door and have some privacy. Uh, so what we want to ask you to do is uh, after the service on the last stanza of the last hymn, I'll ask the elders to come up and just spread out. And you come up and for a minute, you know, just grab an elder and, and, and he'll pray with you. And if then when we're through or that many doesn't come up, we'll just go get our coffee. So, um, and then you're welcome to go downstairs for coffee too. Another thing I would mention, uh, oh, and, and, and review what you uh, saw earlier that Bill prayed about, we are starting now to receive um, uh, applications and resumes for the position here and the search team is starting reviewing those, you know, using the profile and the criteria that was agreed upon for the type of pastor that's needed to take us into the next five, ten years. And uh, so you might you know, pray about that. You might want to come up and pray with an elder about that because that's where the rubber starts meeting the road. And it's a uh, basic criteria, but you also get to a point as fit. You know what that is, F-I-T, fit. And um, uh, that's why you have the final candidate come and preach and visit with everybody so that you can see if uh, this is a fit for us. So there's a lot of objective criteria and subjective criteria, so that's the time to start praying and ask the Lord to bring the right uh, person and family to us. And then the other thing, one thing I found about uh, Protestantism versus you know, Roman Catholicism throughout the Middle Ages and up into the Enlightenment, one thing that Protestantism did uh, for the world and especially for the West was free uh, people from abject 
subjugation to the king and the church or the pope and the priest and said, no, no, wait a minute. Uh, God gave you a brain. He's giving you the scriptures. He's giving you the Holy Spirit. You know, you have a responsibility to read the scriptures yourself and be a priest for God to your family and, and, and to the world, uh, a kingdom of priests. And so under Protestantism, uh, people stood a little straighter and they started using their brains and they started thinking, well, we have a responsibility not just to be told what to do, but to think about what's right. And of course, that was very threatening to king and pope and a lot of wars were fought. And, but now we find, uh, particularly in the West, uh, the beacon of republicanism, that uh, people actually think about their government in church and in community and in federal. And they also uh, serve. They're willing to serve because they feel like that's part of their Christian calling. And uh, Reformed people and Presbyterians are particularly good at this because we have a worldview that encompasses government and family uh, as well as church. Some of our sister denominations are in a, in a more negative anti-thing. When Jimmy Carter was thinking of running for president or governor of Georgia, his church told him, don't do that. You'll get dirtied. You'll get down in the mud. You'll get in the swamp, and you'll become less of a Christian. So stay away from that. Reformed people, Presbyterians, have all said, no, wait a minute. God is Lord of all. He's sovereign. He's sovereign of the family and the church and of the government. And so we are to serve in all those. And historically, in the Congress of the United States, the largest percentage of those who claim church affiliation has always been Presbyterian because of that worldview. And certainly we can't have uh, a democratic republic unless we have people that have studied how government should work and then are willing to serve. I bring that all about because uh, without trying to embarrass anybody, I want to put it in context that we always encourage you to vote. We encourage you to consider going to town hall meetings and civic meetings and listen and uh, school board meetings and express your opinion. And we even express you to consider running for a position. And many of you are or have served some way in a, a government-aligned organization or a government office or the military or, or police or something like that, and you're fulfilling God's calling when you do that. And that is the lifeblood of a republic. And if we don't do that, then we'll end up with a dictatorship or a socialist country because others will have to fill the gap, and those will be those who have no problem telling other people what to do, and we'll be right back where we were a thousand years ago. So, Sanya, I had the privilege this week to go down to uh, the installation of one of our elders, Bill Cooper, as the new general counsel of the Department of Energy, where Rick Perry is uh, the uh, secretary of energy. We had a great time Thursday afternoon there, and uh, I wanted to recognize that one of your elders is serving in government. If you go down to the castle, the Smithsonian right next door is, I think, the Natural History Museum on Independence. And you turn around, look up to the sixth floor corner office, and you can wave at Bill. 
I think he's got like 80 people in his department. There are 1,000 people. We were there. There were like 250 people in this auditorium. But it was very encouraging uh, for us to see all these people who could be serving elsewhere and probably getting a lot less hassle and probably a lot more money. And yet they were serving God by serving their government and serving us. And it was very encouraging. The thing's on YouTube, right, Bill? Yeah, it is. It's on YouTube. And so uh, this week I might send you the link and you can hear my wonderful invocation, <laughs> which lasted one minute, 30 seconds. And uh, I was impressed with uh, Secretary Perry's uh, passion and vision and articulation. And then you get to hear, you know, what Bill had to say. But we, we're grateful that, uh, for Bill doing that, but I want to use it as an illustration. Uh, the reason we have Western democracies and republics is because we believe that if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit and you're a priest of God. And you have a right and responsibility to serve and to lead. So I would always encourage you to do that. And that ties in with our lesson this morning as we come to uh, John. And we're going to start John uh, chapter 1. And I have it there for you in your bulletin on page 6, verses 1 or 2. So hear the word of the Lord as given by the Holy Spirit. In arche ain halogos, ka halogos ain prostheon, kaitheos ain halogos, altos ain arche prostantheon. You got that? Okay, good. Well, that's actually the language of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit inspired uh, John the Apostle, John the son of Debedee, Zebedee, the brother of James, the son of the Boanerges, the sons of thunder, uh, to pen those words. And we're going to look this morning about why he wrote them that way and put it in context and then see uh, what it says. Now, the reason all this ties in is because John tells us in John 20, uh, uh, 30. Jesus did uh, many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But I picked out these seven, these seven signs and these seven sayings, and wrote them down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he was selective. By the way, how many followed my indirect suggestion this past week and went home and read the Gospel of John three times and found the seven signs and the seven sayings. Don't raise your hand. I'm going to give you another chance. I want you to read. It's 21 chapters. It'll take you, you know, do it while the commercial is on. I mean, I don't know. And uh, look for the seven signs and seven sayings. And by the time you read this uh, three times, it'll start to impact your life, and you'll know where we're going. But notice he says, these are written that you may believe, and by believing you may have life in his name. In English, you may believe that. There's a certain content that needs to be believed in order to have eternal life. It's not enough to believe, what does the song says? For every uh, raindrop that falls, a flower grows. 
that doesn't cut it. You know, if you believe that if you put a ripe red tomato in the heel of your foot, it will cure arthritis in your leg, that doesn't work. I don't know, care if you read it on the internet, it doesn't work. There's a certain content, John says, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, if a person believes that content and they experience that life, then they enter into a new kingdom, they become a child of God, they have the power of the Holy Spirit, it starts transforming their lives, and then they have God's worldview, and then they have the Scripture to guide us and tells us, for example, here's how the family should operate, here's how marriage should operate, here's how government should operate. I didn't tell them when I did the invocation that uh, in the uh, early stages of America, even before the American Revolution, when they uh, had a new governor, for example, they would meet and they would spend the whole day, all the government officials would meet in church, and the whole day would be taken up in two-hour sermons by the local pastors about the duties of governing and the responsibilities and how it's to be done from God's Word. Um, I didn't tell them that because I didn't go prepared to do that, for which everyone should be thankful. This is what we are to believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the only uh, connection between God and man, our intercessor. And you've got to believe that. Now, we just uh, did this creed, the Nicene Creed, okay? You see at the bottom of page 846, it originated at the Council of Nicaea, 325, and an expanded form was adopted by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. It was formulated to answer heresies that denied the biblical doctrine of the Trinity and of the person of Christ. Well, what biblical doctrine and what heresies were floating around? Well, you can tell based on paragraph 2. See how long it is? It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. <clears throat> Excuse me, Son of God. Okay, so he's only begotten, begotten of his Father before all worlds. In the beginning was the Word. So that's the reference for that line, before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Because even in John's day, and then coming up until the 4th century, around 325, when the Council of Nicaea met, they met because they were people that were formulating and teaching other views about Jesus, and one is that he was made, created, not begotten. Well, you say, well, what's the difference? Well, he wasn't created. In the beginning was the Word. The Word always was, you see. Being of one substance with the Father. And some would say, well, he uh, is a God, but he's a demigod, kind of like an angel. He's not God, God. And so they came up with this word, one substance. It's called consubstantiation. Con means together with, one substance. Being a one substance with the Father, not a different animal, but one with the Father. 
by whom all things were made. And that's verse 2. So I want you to see right there is John 1, 1, and 2. So John is writing about A.D. 90 or 100, somewhere in there. These ideas, these heresies, were already blossoming because people were finding it hard to believe, or A, that uh, God would come down to earth. That sounded like a pagan myth. Or B, that someone who sweated and slept and ate and grew could also be God. I mean, it's hard to imagine a sweating God exerting himself to a point of perspiration. It's even harder to believe a God who dies. I mean, that's kind of contradictory, isn't it? God is eternal and this God is dying. It becomes even worse when you say this guy, God dies as a criminal. It becomes even worse when you say this God dies as a criminal with the worst possible method of execution, which is public display so that everybody could look and jeer and observe his suffering. That's scandalous, a criminal. And that's one of the hardest uh, things for Muslims to accept. Say so you cannot worship a criminal as your God. And they are scandalized by it. And so people in the first, second, third century were thinking, now how, how, how do you put this together? And someone would say, well, he claimed to be God. He did miracles. And then he rose from the dead. So what other conclusion do you have? Well, let's find a middle ground. There was Gnosticism, there was Arianism, there was a guy named Arius that came up with some of these ideas in about 300 A.D. And he said, uh, let's say that, that Jesus was uh, created by God, so he's a creature, but God gave him special powers. Uh, some of this Arian and Gnosticism stuff is all over the place because they made it up as they went along. So as soon as you say this is what they believe, then another writer would come along and come up with another part. And so it changes a lot. One even said, well, um, when Jesus came time for him to, to die and be resurrected, the Holy Spirit took over his body because the Holy Spirit is spirit and he could not be touched by the flesh. It, it just gets all complicated. This is what was going on. And so they were struggling to try to understand what the Scripture taught that Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. And it took some hard thinking. And they even had to come up with new terminology. They came up with a term that's not even in the Bible called Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. In fact, to show you how hard this is, if you go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, and you go there where the the rock is, you know, that they stepped off the ship, Plymouth Rock. And you go up on the hill, and there's the burying ground where the uh, early pilgrims, pilgrim, not Puritans, that was in Boston. The early pilgrims in Plymouth were buried. And the first winter, over half of them died from starvation and disease and things like that. And they had to bury their dead at night because if the Indians found out how few they were, they would have attacked and wiped them out. So they buried them secretly and didn't mark their graves. 
So they went back and marked them. You can go up there and see the graves. At the end of the street, the first street, is this big church, and it's called the Pilgrim Church. Big thing. And that dates back to, you know, the 17th century. It's Unitarian. It does not believe that Jesus is God. Now, that's how quickly it devolved. Now, you're facing the head of the street, dead end. Here's the big church, and then you turn right. And there's another big church, and it says Pilgrim Trinitarian Church. When they denied Christ, the ancestors of children, children, children of the pilgrims, a bunch of people left and started another church right next to it that's Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that's how quickly the, it, is, it, is, it is you can lose a grasp of what's being taught. Now, John was right in the middle of this because this was not new. For example, uh, Paul, or to say this, John, let me give you a little history here, John was very young when he became an apostle. He might have been a teenager, 15 or 16, okay? Peter was in his 30s, okay? So uh, Jesus died, what, around 33 A.D., right? And then Paul and the apostles went to work. And the book of, uh, and then Paul ministered for several years in Ephesus, which was a Roman colony and the Roman governmental center for that whole area of Asia Minor. So everybody sooner or later came to Ephesus, like you have to go to Baltimore sometimes to find out something about the government, or Annapolis. People have to come to Annapolis because the government is here. And when they would come, they want to go to a theater or a play or something, or the hottest thing was this guy Paul in the school of Tyrannus preaching about Jesus. So they would come in here, and they would become converted, and they would go back to Philippi and Colossae and these other places and start a church there. So Paul would write a letter to the Colossians or the Philippians, and that's how he kept in communication with them. This is what he told the Colossians in about A.D. 60, and, and John is writing about 90 or 100. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and before him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, that's John 1, 1 and 2, isn't it? So this was nothing new that John, who was then living in Ephesus, was writing. Paul had written it 30 years before. But another factor had come in. John lived until 90 or 100 A.D. He, he must have been 60 or 70, which was pretty old for that age. And not only that, all the other 11 apostles were dead by then. As far as church history tells us, all of them by violent means. Paul and uh, Peter had died at the hands of the Romans in Rome. And uh, church history tells us Philip, for example, died in India. This is what church history tells us. We don't have any firsthand reports. But they all die these violent deaths. 
Paul for preaching. John is the last one standing, the last man standing. And he's living in Ephesus where there's this huge church because just guess what happened? In A.D. 70, the Romans got tired of the rebellions in Jewish Israel, in Jerusalem, and they came in and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, knocked down the walls. They desecrated and destroyed the temple, and then they took thousands of Jews, they depopulated the land, and they sold them into slavery around the Mediterranean world. The slave market in Alexandria, Egypt was glutted with Jewish slaves, so slaves that usually went for $100 was going for five bucks. The, uh, Israel was gone. The land was depopulated, the city of Jerusalem destroyed, and the temple knocked down, A.D. 70. Well, by that time, Christianity had moved away from becoming, being minority Jewish to minority Greek Roman, non-Jewish. Ephesus was the biggest church center and then Antioch, north of Jerusalem. They were both Greek Roman, okay? So these new Greek Roman, whatever you want to do, Christians, they'd pick up Matthew and read this genealogy about the Messiah and King David, and they'd say, what and who? What's the Messiah? And who is King David? And why do we care anyway? <laughs> there is no Jewish kingdom anymore. And so the question became, do these newly minted Christians who are not Jewish, do they have to understand all this Jewish stuff in order to be good Christians? Do they have to, put it this way, take a detour through the Old Testament in order to learn about Jesus? Well, no. When we share about Jesus with someone, we tell them, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that who believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a New Testament quote. And so, John is in this. He's got heresies that are popping up that, that are saying Jesus, um, oh, there's another heresy that John the Baptist was really the Messiah because he was first and Jesus was second, okay? And you see him in John 1 saying, John the Baptist himself said, I'm not the Messiah. So he's pushing back against some of this stuff. So some of his friends, some of the Christians came to John and said, look, you're the last apostle left, last man standing. And we got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but could you write us, instead of a historical event-filled gospel, could you write us a spiritual gospel? Something that would apply to everybody. A gospel of belief that we can use to share with people that don't have the Jewish background. So John put all this together. He put, you know, 60 years of thinking and praying about who Jesus was and how to communicate him. He took uh, heresies that were popping up about uh, uh, who Jesus was and who John the Baptist was and how do you know God through Gnosticism or through the Bible. And he rolled all this together and he wrote the Gospel of John. And many have said that John 1.1 is the most remarkable passage in all of Western literature. 
Well, of course, it was written in the East, in Asia Minor. So in all of world literature, it's the most remarkable passage. Let me, let's take a look at it now that you know a little bit of the background. And again, we can use uh, in your, your outline here on page six. You see the Greek at the bottom, and then the middle is the transliteration in English letters. Now, first, I want you to enjoy it. There's such a thing in writing, particularly in poetry and music, called meter. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, four-point, you know, iambic pentameter. You remember all that stuff from school? Now, look what John does. How many, uh, the first phrase, there's one, two, three, four, five uh, words, right? In arche ain halogos. Now, look at the last of that verse, Kai halogos on theos. Five words, right? And there's a rhythm. Now, catch the rhythm. In arche ain halogos, kai halogos on theos. You catch the beat, the rhythm of it? And then kai halogos on proston theon. So, there's a beauty to the way he wrote it. Now, of course, when you start something in the beginning, anybody who's read anything in the Bible thinks of what? Genesis. Genesis, Thank you. Genesis 1. In the big inning. It was the first baseball game in the Bible. In the big inning. You know where tennis is in the Bible, don't you? That was when uh, Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. Yeah, yeah, that's a bad stuff, isn't it? In the beginning, it says in Genesis 1. So John is going back in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he starts out saying, in the beginning, the word already was. Okay? Jesus is eternal. That's the first thing you've got to believe. Well, you say, wait a minute, it doesn't say Jesus, it says the Word, Logos. Well, where did that come from? Well, again, John is saying, is there some terminology I can use that he, at the end, he says, John chapter 21, Messiah, Christos, Messiah is Hebrew, Mechuk. Uh Christos is Greek. We say anointed, okay? So it's not Jesus Christ, it's not his last name, it's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. So instead of using that term up front, he does in John 21, he says, let's use the word logos. Logos means word or speech. It was common to the Jews and to the Greeks. Now to the Greeks, they just made it up. Whatever they wanted their logos to mean, it meant it meant the life force that drives everybody. You know, it's the energy, the life energy. And it's speech. You make a speech and it changes things. Well, the Jews also used the Logos, the word, but to them it was more specific. It was in the beginning God said, let there be light. He spoke. He did a word, let there be light, and it had an impact. Now, if you go to Colossians and then John 1, and then uh, Proverbs 8 and a lot of these things. And Jesus was the one who did the creating. It says right there in John 1, all things were created through him. And without him, nothing was created. So 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were creating, Jesus was creating. So the Word was Jesus at work creating. The Jews thought the Word was very powerful. You remember Abraham is giving a blessing before he's dying to his oldest son Esau. But Isaac extinct, is it Isaac? Is that Isaac? Esau and Isaac? Who was Esau's brother? Who was? Jacob. Thank you. That didn't sound right. Esau and Jacob. Jacob had sneaked in there, uh, and, 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 and then the, the blessing was given. And then Esau came in and said, Father, don't you have any blessing for me? And Abraham said, no, I don't. The word has gone out. The word has done its work. The blessing is gone. I can't take it back. The word is powerful and effective. So this was the Jewish idea, the logos of God, the word that God speaks. That, you find out now, was Jesus. Everything was made through him, and nothing was made that was not made through him. And the beginning was the word, and the word, Jesus, is eternal. Now, again, he's the only begotten Son of God from all of eternity. And see, that goes against the common that you have Unitarianism, you have Jehovah's Witnesses, you have Mormonism. All of these are saying Jesus, if he was eternal, he was, I'm going to stop right there because I don't want to get into all the other beliefs without misrepresenting them or, or confusing them. They don't say that Jesus was eternal and was begotten and was God. Well, let's go on. And the beginning was the Word, and I got down there, Jesus always was. This is what we have to believe to have eternal life. And the Word was with God. Now, two things, and then Jesus was always with God. Two things are going on there. If you're with someone, you're separate from them, right? There's got to be two to be with. If you're the same, there's no with. You, you are. You catching me? So if someone is with someone, if I'm with Sandy, how many of there are how many of, how many are there of us coming to lunch? Two. I'm with Sandy. You see. It was so funny. For a long time, you know, uh, Sandy was Pastor Curran's wife in my denomination, and then she became the Eastern Regional Director of the. PCA women's ministry for six years. And I go to meetings, and this is Sandy's husband. <laughs> it was due, right? It was only fair. But there's always two, whether it's uh, Pastor Curran and his wife or Sandy and her husband, there's two. So he's emphasizing, in the beginning was the Word. And if you're eternal, that implies that you're God. But the Word was with God. There's two, and they're separate. But look down there. You can see the word is hakai halogos ain pros danteon. Pros means not just with. It means toward, facing, you see. Jesus, if you're walking down the White House, and someone comes down the hall and said, uh, the president is going to bomb Iran. How do you know that? Did you, did, were you just with him? Did he say that? How do you know that's true? Well, no, I haven't seen him for a week. 
Well, if you weren't with him, if you weren't talking to him, and he didn't say that, how do you know that's true? Well, how do we know that Jesus is the exact representation of God and that he explains God to us because he is with God? He is in fellowship with God. And you know what two people together do? They plan. They deliberate. They think things through. They plan the history of the universe. They plan the planet. They plan the story of salvation. They plan my life. So he's saying Jesus was with God. Okay, well, great. Then we got two gods, right? In the beginning was the Word, so he's eternal. But he's with God, so that means there's two gods. But then he says, and the Word was God. Now, it doesn't say was the God, and it doesn't say a God. In fact, if you look at uh, down here, Kai Halogos on Theos, most of the time, you see right above it, in Arche, Ain Halogos, in the, in the beginning was the word, Ho Logos, the word. It doesn't say the God, which it normally would. And so... Uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness have their own Bible. And right there it says, and, and the Word was a God. Because it doesn't say Hologos, it doesn't say the God. And so they translate it, Jesus was a God. And so everybody can be a God the way Jesus was. You know, um, uh, one Mormon leader said, as every man so was God, and as God so can be every man. In other words, God was a mortal who became God, uh, uh, who became God, and every human being can become God through following that 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 route. Well, the Jehovah's Witness are really off base because number one, there are 250 times in the New Testament God is used without an article, without the "the." Uh, Romans says the only wise God is not Hotheos; it's Theos. And not only that, you see in the beginning, in RK, it doesn't say in a beginning. There was only one beginning. It's in the beginning. The article is supplied in English. That's how you translate Greek. So, but what he's saying is the Word was God. Not the God, the only God, not a God. He was God. So, if the Word was with God and the Word was God, you're either confused or you become a Trinitarian. Some people got confused, and that's where we got these creeds that we read this morning. And they had to do battle against people that were trying to say, well, Jesus couldn't have been a God or he's a man that became a God, or God created him, all these other things. And John is saying, look, in the beginning, the Word already was. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So you see how much he's saying in those few verses. And I appreciate you listening to all the history in the background, but when we get into this, next week, next week uh, Nick will be preaching on those next passages, 
And you'll see, here's what he's saying. And I think uh, Nick over here is going to be out of town, and you're going to, Josh, you're going to be planning leading the music, right? Got a whole, got a team up here next week, people. You got to come hear that. I'm going to be preaching at uh, Safe Harbor Church uh, up there. And we'd already planned for Nick, and that came opportunity to do that. And so that's what's happened. So when Nick preaches on that passage, you'll understand some of the background. So let's close it up. What did John say the purpose of writing this book was? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, what does that mean? He just is explaining it in John 1. You have to believe something specific, that Jesus was in the beginning, that he was with God, and that he is God. And that belief is what brings life in his name. Because here's the thing. If Jesus is a created being or he's a man that became a God, we are worshiping an idol. You don't worship man. You see that? And if Jesus is not God, then his death on the cross is only good for one person, not for all people. And so Christianity becomes just another pagan religion and just another footnote in history. And that's what happens when you get things like Unitarianism. All the power, all the truth just goes out of Christianity like a balloon. And that's why John 1 begins, in the beginning the Word already was. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That's the truth of what we believe. If we put it into a long creed, it's all right there in John 1. Most remarkable statement in all the world. In arche, ain halogos, kai halogos, ain prostantheon, kai halogos, ain theos. In the beginning, you want to say it with me? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. On that rests our salvation and eternal life. That statement. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for John that at the close of his life, he took his pen and his heart and his mind and his memories and through the power of the Holy Spirit wrote these immortal words that clearly tell us who Jesus is. We thank you that we have a Savior fully God, fully man, second person of the Trinity, who for our sin and our benefit took on human flesh, became a man, and when he died as a man, he also paid our penalty as the infinite God. We thank you that this is the truth of our religion and that this truth gives eternal life if we believe it of the Lord Jesus. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.